The Hartman Company's Golden Age products are at it again with more new products. You heard that correctly, even more new products. The company that brought you a first class hair cream, hair tonics, and aftershave lotion. The same Hartmans who teamed up with One Round Jack to bring you a classic pomade. Then joined forces with Jacob Evans of Let's Talk Pomade podcast to create an original clay pomade. While they're back at it with their newest product, Rascal's Brilliantine. I had our consigliere try out their initial trial batch, and guess what? It gave him that classic good-looking shine. Even I wanted to kiss him. So if you go to the HartmanCompany.com site, you can pre-order this and all of their fabulous products. And don't forget, folks, with Hanukkah and Christmas right around the corner, you don't want to get caught looking like a slouch. And the HartmanCompany.com and their Golden Age products will assure you don't. So go to the HartmanCompany.com site and put in your code word GANGSTER to garner an additional 10% off of your purchase. That's the HartmanCompany.com with two N's, bringing you the newest in old fashion. Go there today. Warning, the show is intended for mature audiences. Parental discretion is advised. Welcome to the History of Organized Crime. I'm your host, Michael Vista. This episode, Who's the Boss? On September 6th of 2018, Elon Musk, the visionary magnate who is burrowing tunnels under Los Angeles to make a speedy tube transportation system, launching rockets into space with returnable launch vehicles, and building a bunch of cars that run on batteries, appeared on the Joe Rogan Experience for a two and a half hour conversation. In that short window of time, he became curious, as geniuses oft do, of a device on Joe Rogan's desk, in which, when opened, it revealed Joe Rogan's spliffs. For the uninitiated, a spliff is a combination of cannabis and tobacco. Joe Rogan took one, lit it up, and offered it to Elon Musk. The South African prodigy took a quick toke of the spliff, replied, it's not bad, and handed it back to the host, and these two modern Renaissance men continued their conversation. The next day, the world turned upside down. Nobody could talk about anything else except Elon Musk smoking pot. Soon, he was receiving resignations from high-level executives within his companies, issues with his stock prices. Just a huge heap of cattle dung was seemingly falling on his head. No one cared about Rogan, who is not only one of the world's finest stand-up comics, but is also considered one of the leading authorities on martial arts runs one of the top-rated podcasts and YouTube channels in the world, and comes across as an intelligent, thoughtful, introspective, and kind human being. Oh, and Joe Rogan also hosted Fear Factor. I'm standing in front of a chick with a mouthful of animal dicks. I'm like, you can do it! You hang in there! Relax! Breathe! Concentrate! Just look at me! And she's taking my advice! She's gagging me! You can get through this! But for Elon, it must have seemed like a whirlwind of bad news and answering questions from people who have no idea what it is like to think outside of the box or how to originate capital for a startup enterprise. I'm sure it caused him nothing but a slew of nightmares, which he is still trying to get under control. But what a real bite in the ass it must be to have people who might have an IQ of 110 questioning you and your decisions. In some aspects, I'm sure Salvatore Toto D'Aquila must have been going through the same thing. 
By the time prohibition was rolling into the national light as a law, his decisions and orders were being met with, at best, half-hearted attention and probably less effort. His siding with non-Sicilians had become a major issue for him. In retrospect, I consider Toto D'Aquila to be something of a visionary. He'd been in America long enough to know it was a melting pot of not only Sicilians, but other Italians, Irish, Chinese, Jews, and Blacks. At some point, they were going to have to deal with these people, and they would be looking for acceptance, too. He didn't have to look further than the up-and-coming street gangs of Little Italy to see that. One of the most respected young crews had Jews, companions, and were led by a Sicilian named Luciano. They worked hand-in-hand, with few crosswords, plenty of friendly slang heaped upon one another's parentage, but never any anger or rumors of a falling out with one another. He didn't particularly like Luciano, who was cocky, sly, and fearless, as young often are. What he really didn't like was he spent much of his time with Frank Costello, who was a known mover and shaker for the Morello family in Harlem and New Jersey. The Morello family was suspected of trying to position themselves for the return of their old boss, Giuseppe Pidu Morello. They expected to be the lead Sicilian crime family in America again, and for Toto to be stripped of his title, Capo di Capi. Toto had other ideas, and was on the look for any insults, real or perceived. In mid-March, a middle-aged gentleman appeared in Harlem for the first time in a decade. Unlike the fellow who had left ten years before, he was clean-shaven and had affected a mature man's haircut. Unlike when he had departed before, he went by the name Peter Morello. When Giuseppe Morello arrived at the federal prison in Atlanta, along with Ignazio Lupo, they'd been given the prisoner numbers 2882 and 2883, respectively. Giuseppe had, for the most part, been a model prisoner and caused little to no problems. His Sicilian nickname, Pidu, sounded close enough to Peter for most of the people in the slammer, so he became Peter. I would like to say that his stay was an uneventful one, but that is not completely true. James V. Ortolero, a stenographer to William J. Flynn of the Secret Service, was attempting to obtain a murder confession from Giuseppe Morello through circuitous means. The murder in question was that of Giovanni Vella, the authority figure who had planned to kill Giuseppe Morello and, if possible, prosecute his friend and leader Paulino Strava for the stealing of cattle. While we covered this in episode 12, there were some things that we left out on purpose. Allegedly, beyond killing Vela, Giuseppe Morello was thought to have killed other people in an attempt to cover up his crime, including an elderly woman. The problem with that is, there are no records of the other murders with the supposed names to match the legend. Secondly, another man was prosecuted for the murder of Vela, and his name was Francesco Ortolero, father of the man attempting to get the confession. Francisco was still in prison, but on his deathbed. James Ortolero just wanted his father's name and honor restored. Plus, it was outside of U.S. jurisdiction and Morello couldn't be tried for it since there was a statute of limitations under Italian law. This was merely a kindness being asked, on Ortolero's part, from Morello. Plus, James Ortolero had something of a relationship with the Morello-Terranova family. While his father Francesco's paternal lineage was that of the old aristocracy of the Kingdom of Two Sicilies, his grandfather was literally a baron. His maternal line was that of the Strava clan of the Corleone Casca. In fact, Paulino Strava was James Ortolero's second cousin once removed. His mother's name had been Laura Strava. Paulino was her cousin and they had been raised together. 
Remember, folks, these noblemen hired the local mafia to protect their property, so these were intertwined relationships. Whether that confession ever came forth, or even close to happening, no one knows. Giuseppe Morello had staved off all questions to concentrate on his appeal for the original sentence of 25 years. So, it is doubtful he ever came close to giving that information out with that in his forethought. He was blessed with a resentencing of 15 years that, with good behavior, would have him and Ignazio Lupo out by 1920. While the newly dubbed Peter Morello didn't have any inside issues that we've discovered, Ignazio Lupo was not so fortunate. When you lock up sociopaths, particularly as extreme as Lupo was, they don't tend to handle it well, and he surely didn't. He did multiple stints in solitary confinement, multiple food restrictions, added time, and was considered suspect in the murder of a warden. The wolf was too coarse of a human being to understand how to befriend and bribe guards appropriately. Not bright enough in changing his prison number or spitting on a freshly mopped floor in front of the guards. He was known to start laughing and cackling out loud for no reason at all and too violent in dealing with other inmates over trivial issues in the cafeteria. I said, coffee! Lupo accumulated so much extra time in the pokey that it would take him an additional three months to get out of prison. When he got out and returned home, not only had the world changed, so had Lupo. Yes, he still generated fear, was far more uncouth than he had been before he left, but it was also easy to see that physically, the monster wasn't as able to perform his horrific acts as he had been, though the mental ability was ever-present. Regardless, upon the return of the old Don, Peter Morello, his half-brother, Vincenzo the Tiger Terranova, dutifully stepped down and handed the reins of the family back over to him. Vincenzo wasn't the organizer or planner that Morello or his little brother Nicolo had been, though he and his right-hand man, Silva Tagliagamba, were holding on. But the family power had been tattered and torn. Sure, they had a staunch ally in Gaetano Riena up in the Bronx. Though that relationship was through marriage, it was a strong one. They still had their power in New Jersey, through Willie Moretti. Morello's voice still carried weight with most of the Sicilian families in the country, as he had not been as accepting of outsiders as Toto D'Aquila had. How do I put this? Have we ever hired any Jews? Not on my watch. Giuseppe Joe Mazzaria had consolidated enough of Lower Manhattan to not have to give his grounds up to Lupo upon his return and was considered an unreliable ally due to his slow acquisition of power. Nicolo Shiro was considered even more unreliable as he had handled the day-to-day -day issues while placating all sides including Toto D'Aquila. Toto D'Aquila was, in fact, the power of his time upon the Morello-Lupo release. He had nominal control of the Midwest, partly through his alliance with Big Joe Leonardo in Cleveland and the fact he had eventually forged a peace with the Southside Gang of Chicago through his relationship with Johnny Torrio and Frankie Yale, who had an enclave in southern Brooklyn. He was the major power of Brooklyn and Queens, he held territories in the Bronx and Harlem. He had begun opening businesses and even a home in Lower Manhattan's Little Italy. In addition, he had the wiliest gunman and killer in New York City in Umberto Valente. At that point in 1920, Valente was thought to have killed 20 men and set up multiple ambushes on others. He was so good at his job that D'Aquilo was running out of awards to give the man for his work. He eventually put Valente in charge of all his holdings in Harlem and parts of the Bronx. 
And it is at this time that Aquila was merely waiting for word from his spies that there were plots afoot or disrespect towards him. It didn't take very long either. By fall of that year, word on the street was that Giuseppe Peter Murillo was angling to get his title back. Lupo was pounding around like it was 20 years earlier and shaking down people who knew and feared him still. Plus, word on the street was that Joe Mazzaria would also be vying for the title of Capo di Capi, expecting his youth and street knowledge, coupled with his new vast income, to get him to that illustrious height as Toto would be challenged for the right to be the boss. What really hurt Toto D'Aquila was the fact that another rumor was being whispered in his ear from his many spies that his very own captain, Umberto Valente, was working in cahoots with the Morellos in Mazaria to replace D'Aquila as the boss of the family. It was then that Toto decided that he was surrounded by nothing but enemies and it was time to act instead of being usurped. He put a price on the heads of Morello, Lupo, Mazaria, Vincenzo and Chiro Terranova, Silva Tagliagamba, Gaetano Riena, Tommy Gagliono, Willie Moretti, Frank Costello, and Umberto Valente. And just to point out, Costello wasn't feared by Toto, more so he presented an obstacle to Toto D'Aquila's objectives through Tammany Hall. Costello was much more intelligent than your average gangster and was a fast riser with the political ears of the day. Toto didn't feel he could be trusted since he lacked that Sicilian thing. Word was on the street and before anyone could start racking up kill points on behalf of Toto D'Aquila, either peace envoys were coming through or the targets were disappearing. Both Willie Moretti and Frank Costello laid low and arranged peace feelers to the Luciano gang in Little Italy, who contacted D'Aquila through either Johnny Torrio or Frankie Yale. Gaetano Riena and Tommy Gagliona went and paid their respects to Toto. Giuseppe Morello, his half-brothers, the Terranovas and Lupo, all seemingly disappeared. Though at least Morello and Lupo showed up in Sicily, either in late 1920 or early 1921. We couldn't find any evidence of the Terranova brothers being there, though there are rumors. Who wasn't running was Joe Mazzaria or Umberto Valente. Valente had his own access to Toto, and he had decided to show his loyalty to his boss by setting up hits on whomever his boss said to. He wanted Toto to know that he was his man until the end. Mazaria was making way too much cabbage to just run away, so he just paid off Toto. Now, here's where we're going to have to do a little bit of guessing as to what Morello and Lupo were doing in Sicily, other than staying out of D'Aquila's line of fire. You see, the previous 10 years had been a bloodbath. Detroit was decimated with violence. Chicago's west side had been a war zone. And of course, New York City had ended up under the power of the late Giuseppe Gallucci, who was not a Sicilian. Through the efforts of Niccolo Terranova and other Sicilian gangs, the Camorra had weakened much, especially with Gallucci's death, along with the arrest of the leadership of the Camorra gangs at the end of the Mafia Camorra War. Sicily hadn't been much better with the violence and rhetoric of the Fasci versus the powerful land, mine, and cattle owners of the island, which placed the local mafiasi in the middle of everything. Regardless of these issues, Don Vito Cassiofero had maintained his slithery grip on most of the Sicilian factions in the United States and about half in Sicily. His strength was based in and around Corleone, as well as Castellamare de Golfo, and he was accepted and respected in the more urban environment of Palermo. He was as sly as ever. 
One of the two things that certainly happened was Giuseppe Morello and Ignazio Lupo had been introduced to two of the up-and-comers from Castellamare. In the forms of Salvatore Maranzano and the youngster Giuseppe Bonanno, who was only a teenager then, and a mafia prince in the eyes of many. You see, Fido Cassiofaro had a plan to consolidate the Sicilian gangs in America and to discard the riffraff, most particularly the Jewish and Irish gangsters who were seeping into the fabric of their organizations. Maranzano was part of that plan. Seen as the Castellamare crew with the most homogenous of the Sicilian gangs in America, with the possible exception of the Matranga family in New Orleans, it was the best move. Daquila's reign and his double-crossing of a member of the Fertuzzi on the side of non-Sicilians could not be allowed to continue. There was going to have to be a reckoning. By 1921 in New York, the Castellamare crew out of Williamsburg, Brooklyn, had taken a hit when the good killers had gotten rounded up and were looking at long prison sentences in their quest to win their feud. We covered most of this in episode 20, but a quick rehash never hurts. Their tactics included garnering non-members to do the killing for them, then they would snuff out the killers they brought on board. Bartolo Fontana was one of these and was forced by them to kill his childhood friend Camillo Chiazzo in New Jersey. As you'll recall, Fontana had gotten flipped by Detective Michael Fischetti and ended up as the state's only reliable witness. When the case against the good killers collapsed, Stefano Magadino, one of its more forceful members, got spooked and he decided it was time to make an exit from the Big Apple. He relocated to Buffalo, New York, using his knowledge as a mortician to front his illegal activities. Because of his legal profession, when he showed up, everybody knew. Oh my God! He really is here! The Undertaker is here! Likewise, Gaspar Malazzo, who was more like Shiro than the brutal Vito Von Ventre or Stefano Magadino, was sent west to placate warring factions in Detroit, which was fine with him. It took him right out of the limelight of New York City. It was also during 1921 that between the placating of Toto D'Aquila's fears by paying him off and reassuring him of their loyalties or just outright disappearing, that the coverage of the Good Killers investigation and trial that everything was seemingly at peace. Joe Mazzaria was running an open market speakeasy called the Bootlegger's Curb that was literally a block away from a police precinct. Nicolo Shiro was attempting to keep the Williamsburg crew together while everything was being overshadowed by having a large swath of his men locked up in the Tombs Jail in Lower Manhattan. Gaetano Riena in the Bronx had made peace with Nicola, but he wasn't trusted much because his sister was married to Vincenzo Terranova. Shockingly, Vincenzo had reappeared, but was maintaining a low profile while he managed the family for his half-brother, Peter Morello. Of the five major Sicilian gangs in New York City, only D'Aquila's and Mazzaria's gang seemed to be really moving ahead. The others seemed to be treading water. Toto did have one thing in his favor during this tension. He knew he'd have to get rid of Giuseppe Peter Morello. He knew he'd have to get rid of Ignazio Lupo as well but there was no point in anything until they returned to the United States. It was at this point that he got his killer, Umberto Valente, who worked in Harlem and had sworn his loyalty so passionately to him, to suck up to Vincenzo Terranova. Bring him close. If not friends, 
just two members of the Fertuzzi with deep ties to the old country. By 1922, most of the good killers were out of the pokey and back home in Williamsburg, having avoided being found guilty of conspiracy to murder in multiple states. By this time, Salvatore Maranzano had come over from Sicily to make arrangements to import booze into the country, working hand-in-hand with Shiro, who was the official head of the Castellamare clan in America. Also, for the first time in two years, Morello and Lupo had shown back up in Harlem. It was nearly two years of Valente learning the Morello Terranova family and how they operated and their routines, being based in Harlem too, had assisted in this greatly. Early in the year, Vincenzo had gotten arrested for carrying a concealed weapon under the Sullivan Act, which was enacted under the corrupt Tammany Hall leader, Big Tim Sullivan. The bill did exactly what it was designed to do, which was arrest anyone with a concealed weapon. If that person was in good standing with Tammany Hall, the charges were dropped. If not, you were going to jail. So Vincenzo didn't spend a lot of time cooling his heels in the pokey. In addition, Vincenzo was still the primary face of the family, the street boss, if you will, but everyone knew that Morello was the head of that family. Sure, Morello had Lupo still, and Lupo was still greatly feared, but he was also known for his bluntness and crude handling of murder. Vincenzo was known as the Tiger of Harlem for a reason, and he was probably the most effective killer Giuseppe currently had until he could get things organized and they could bring on younger men who had no problems in the killing of other men and the handling of other family businesses. Toto had a plan that would essentially wrap up multiple problems in a quick series of decapitation moves against two of the gangs. They needed to weaken, if not kill, Morello, and they needed to take out Mazaria. Mazaria was being marked because Toto D'Aquilo wanted that bootlegger's curb business, which was the hottest spot to get booze in Lower Manhattan, if not all of New York City. Mazaria was making so much money off the enterprise that his income rivaled D'Aquilo's, which meant he was a rival for the title of boss. If he could get Mazaria's territory and maybe pull off snagging Harlem, no one would dare not acknowledge him as the big boss. He also knew this had to be kept between Sicilians, because he was still getting grief from Palermo over helping the Camorra against Niccolo Terranova, which was a big no-no in the Fertuzzi. It was time to test the loyalty that had been begged for from Valente. He was, in all honesty, the best butt man Toto had ever had, and his planning and luck were undeniable. In the early morning of May 8, 1922, while walking down 116th Street toward the corner of 2nd Avenue, a dapper Vincenzo Terranova, who was wearing his checkered suit with a silk shirt, his wedding ring, and his diamond-crusted glam ring, was heading down to work. A car pulled up and sawed-off shotguns came out, and Vincenzo was gunned down in the street, but not before pulling his own gun and returning fire. The police arrived a minute later, and the Tiger of Harlem was dead. His wife heard the shooting, and she came running. She identified him as her husband to the police. A few hours later, Silva Tagliagamba, Vincenzo's right-hand man, and Joe Mazzaria were at the bootlegger's curb, when gunmen showed up and started shooting. Tagliagamba was struck multiple times. Mazzaria was able to avoid getting shot and ran for it. Tagliagamba would die a few weeks later from his injuries. Part of what made research fun in this section was how they identified Vincenzo in the newspapers of the day. They gave his last name as Morelli, but the headline was, 
Gunman Kill Cousin of Lupo the Wolf It is fairly obvious that the journalists of the day had little to no understanding of what was really going on outside of knowing the viciousness of Lupo. Regardless, this put Peter Morello as the face of the operation again, but he needed time to get things organized. He needed to find a way to garner breathing room and recruit new men. The word on the street was Umberto Valente had been the leader of the gunmen, and he didn't have anyone of that nature. Humbling himself, the former Capo di Capi, who had lost two cousins, two half-brothers, and a son in the last 12 years, went to see Giuseppe Joe Mazzaria. They had a sit-down, and Giuseppe Morello, head of the oldest gang in New York City, agreed to merge his gang with Mazzaria's, and he would serve as Joe Mazzaria's consigliere. Mazzaria accepted. This union of the two gangs would essentially be used to blunt Dodo Dequila's power. Valente, though he'd killed two of the three targets in a day, was not happy. He had promised his boss that Mazzaria would be out of the picture and he would have absolute control of Lower Manhattan. His failure, he promised, would be short-lived. On August 9th, a few short months after the slaying of Vincenzo Terranova in Silva Tagliagamba, Joe Mazzaria exited his apartment on 2nd Avenue. He'd barely gotten down the steps when two gunmen came charging after him. Mazzaria saw the sudden movement and knew this was another hit, and he raced into a woman's store located right next to his apartment building. The gunman kept firing into the windows as Mazzaria ducked and looked for an exit. The two shooters noticed a sizable crowd down the street and, not wanting to be identified, jumped on the running board of their getaway vehicle. The crowd they saw was from the women's union meeting that had just finished up, and several spectators jumped in front of the car to slow it down or stop it. The gunman had already reloaded, and they shot into the crowd of people, and the car plowed through them as well. Six people were injured, two were dead, and they killed a horse too. The police found Mazaria hiding upstairs in the women's store. He was shaken up from the encounter, and aside from his hat taking two bullets, he had not been hit. In two events, gunmen had shot at him from point-blank range, and he had not been hit once. So his legend grew into one as the man who could dodge bullets. Wow. He is the one. In the months since Giuseppe Morello and Mazzaria had secretly joined forces, this had given Morello the time needed to get a better idea of the lay of the land and he started actively recruiting, with Mazaria's permission. After the second attempt on Mazaria, an envoy for peace was sent to Valente, who had obviously been the one taking aim on behalf of his boss, Toto D'Aquila. Valente had missed the same man twice and was in hot water. He needed to gain some time and space so as to figure out the next course of action. The envoy was a known commodity to Valente, and one not known to be aligned with either Mazaria or Morello so he knew he was hired to set up the meeting. On August 11th, two days since the failed hit, Valente and two bodyguards showed up at a coffee shop on 2nd Avenue and 12th Street as scheduled. Rumor has it Giuseppe Morello was there as the peace negotiator, but something became clear to Valente really quick. This wasn't a peace conference. It was a hit. Morello and their shared contact, along with Valente and his guards, were supposed to be the only ones there, when gunmen came from the back and started shooting. Valente did his finest impression of Joe Mazzaria 
and avoided getting shot as he ran out the door. His bodyguards were not so lucky. The contact, who had arranged the meeting, ran out the door as Valente jumped on the running board of a car. He pulled his gun, took careful aim, and shot down Toto Daquila's number one button man dead. According to the word on the street and the number one suspect of the New York Police Department, as the killer of Umberto Valente, was a man named Charles Lucky Luciano. This was a devastating blow to Daquila. His number one hitter and most loyal man was dead. Sure, he had the manpower to go after one gang or the other, but both together? Maybe not. Regardless, they had more political power than did Daquila. They held a practical monopoly on the island of Manhattan. Daquila was smart and not a pushover. He had strong contacts throughout the entire country, had manpower. What he really needed to do was solidify his overseas support while holding off any attempts from Mazaria, and he needed time to maintain as many buffers between them. To these ends, he made deals with Nicolo Shiro in West Brooklyn and Gaetano Riena in the Bronx. These would essentially cushion most of his territory whilst he worked his magic. He may have won a dark victory by taking out Giuseppe Morello's half-brother in his right-hand man, but they were minor gains in a high-level poker match. Now, before we sign off, it is time we said our goodbyes to James Joseph Bulger Jr. Also known as Whitey, he was born in Massachusetts in 1929 and would eventually run what will become known as the Winter Hill Gang of Boston's South Side. Implicated in multiple murders, some of which he would remove fingers and the teeth of his victims to make identification more difficult. One of the FBI's most wanted men for 16 years, he was arrested in Santa Monica in 2011. Hours earlier, on October 30th of 2018, Whitey Bulger had been moved to the Federal Penitentiary Hazelton Complex in West Virginia. Now wheelchair-bound, the man who worked in tandem with the FBI as a rat, selling out La Cosa Nostra members in Boston, was sitting in his new cell when multiple men entered. He was repeatedly struck with a padlock inside of a sock. According to reports, the attackers, using a prison shank, tried to remove his eyes and tongue, which was a Sicilian message, reminding others they didn't see nothing and they don't speak of nothing. Two of those being held in connection with his murder are Paul J. D. Colagero, a crew member for the Patriarca crime family, and Photius Freddy Gius, a former button man with the same mafia ties. We here at the History of Organized Crime podcast say it couldn't have happened to a nicer guy. In our next episode, we'll be heading to Detroit and its booze supplier, Ontario. There are changes coming, changes for the better, though in violation of the Volstead Act. Now, according to SoundCloud, you can ask us questions at any point in the show, and they'll send your questions to me directly. Don't be upset if I don't respond right away. You can find the History of Organized Crime on SoundCloud as well as iTunes. Please give us a review. It helps promote the show, and we thank you in advance. You can find us on Facebook at the History of Organized Crime. Don't forget to go to thehartmancompany.com and put in your code word GANGSTER to garner an additional 10% off your purchase. You can contact us directly at michaelvista1970 at yahoo.com. And remember, organized crime is only a crime because the government hates competition.